Again, we're in our Rethink series. I had someone <laughs> jokingly say this morning when they came and they looked at the program, they said, we're still in 1 Corinthians? And I was like, to the end of the year, we'll be in 1 Corinthians. We started the year in 1 Corinthians. We'll be to the end of the year in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 alone has like 60 verses or something like that. So actually, we'll be in chapter 15 in the next two weeks. And we're talking about life today. We're talking about rethinking life. And if you're new with us today, this series is all about different themes we've been talking about life. We talked about marriage, sex. We've talked about discipleship, gospel. We've, we've done community. We've, we've done church. We've uh, singleness. We've, we've done all different topics throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And, it's, and what we're trying to do is help us rethink what these are in light of the scriptures. Okay, a lot of times we, we know what we think about these issues, um, but most of, our, most of our thinking on these is informed by the world, not by what the scriptures say. And Paul is dealing with a young church here in the church in Corinth, and he's beginning to help them understand what their faith is and how it's supposed to be lived out in the world. So this morning we're talking about life, and it's all about resurrection as we sang about leading up, leading up to this. So, uh, let me start with this. A few, uh, maybe a month ago or so, my family, we took a vacation. We did the whole, the thing, the whole wow air stop over in Iceland to Northern Europe thing. We ended up in Copenhagen, then we drove around Copenhagen, or we drove around Northern Europe and did like Sweden, Germany, and Denmark. Um, in order to do that though, in each of these places, we had to rent a car. And in Europe, if you traveled in Europe much, when you rent a car there, when you rent a car here, you automatically get an automatic. I don't even think they give you the choice here. But in Europe, if you want an automatic, you're gonna have to pay a lot more money every day for an automatic. And I was like, I can learn how to drive a manual. <laughs> how hard can it be? I've driven one, I, I had driven one younger when I, f when I first started driving, and so I knew the mechanics. I knew the whole clutch thing, the... How many of you guys can drive a manual? Oh, wow! That's more, that's <laughs> Dave appears like this. Yeah, that's how I was. So we, um, <clears throat> I went out with Gable actually, and he's, he's got a, a manual and, and we practiced right before we left. And I'm like, ah, easy, got it. Uh, so we go, we go into Iceland. And if you've been to Iceland, there's nobody that lives in that country. That, that country, <laughs> there's 300,000 people in that country and that's it. I mean, it's, it's huge and it's vast, so sometimes you're the only person on the road. And it was so easy driving a, a manual in, in Iceland because you're just, it's all highway basically, right? Well, I thought it was going to be good practice for me. So then we go to Copenhagen. Copenhagen, I don't know, a city of about a million probably, bustling. Is more than that? Okay, more than that. Missy's like, you're dumb. It's more than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a big city and a lot of bikes. You think we have a lot of bikes here? Copenhagen is a biking city, so tons of bikes. And so we rent a manual. Well, while we're in the city, first of all, we're just taking transit, but then we're about to go out of the city, so we rent a manual there. And the first thing I have to do to get the car is get it out of an underground parking garage. And, I, and we're, we're to the gate. I push the button or whatever, it goes up, and I can't even see the outside. That's how steep the incline is. It's so steep. And I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> this is no bueno. <laughs> this is not going to be good. So I get it in. We're in first gear. We're, we're all good. 
we're going up the incline, and I stall out halfway up. And like, I stalled out so violently that it felt like I hit the wall. Um, and I rolled back with this, and I'm on the brakes. I'm like, shoot, OK, OK. We're, we're on the incline. I'm like, there's probably cars behind us. Like, what am I going to do? I got to get it back into first gear while I'm on the incline. And you know, if, if you've done this before, yeah, you, know, you know the pedals, you know the handbrake thing. Well, so I'm, I'm trying all that. And so I'm going into it. I try it again, and I stall out again. And it's like violent. Like, the car, I, I think I'm hitting something. And so I'm like, OK, I'm starting to get frazzled. It doesn't help that I have a six-year-old and a seven-year-old in the back seat saying, Daddy, why aren't we going up the hill? <laughs> What's going on? And I'm like, be quiet. I'm trying to figure this out here. <laughs> Don't talk to me right now. And trying to do the thing, and I stall out again. And I don't know how I got it up the hill, but I'm like freaking out. And I don't know how I got it up the hill. Like, I almost hit the wall. Like, the car had, yeah, it, it was crazy. So we eventually get up, up the hill in a cloud of smoke and stench. I was burning something. Like, I burned something all the way up the hill. Who knows what was burning? Like, it was the clutch, the brakes, my anger. <laughs> all three of those combined created this horrible smell. And so, <laughs> but we're off. We're driving through Copenhagen. And, and Emerson, kids are just so awesome, right? Emerson is like, it smells horrible in here. And they're like complaining, and, and I'm, I'm frazzled, right? Frazzled is the euphemism for I'm really, really angry. <laughs> <laughs> and frustrated. So I look at my rearview mirror, about to yell at the girls to, to be quiet, and I see the car behind me, and both people in the car behind me are covering their noses. Like, it smells that bad. We're out in an open air, and they can still smell whatever I burned off in that car. And they're covering their faces, and I can see the kid in the front seat, like, asking his mom, like, what's, what's going on? <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is the worst. I just need to get out of this country. I'm so embarrassed and, and everything. Well, the problem was, we're driving in Northern Europe. We're going to these, all these countries, and I know that I'm going to have to park in an underground parking garage again. I know that I'm going to have to go up another incline like that again. I know I'm going to have to deal with this again. And somewhere in between, I realized that the car, Alex, has hill assist. And <laughs> if it's the ones of you who are laughing know what that is, I realized that the car won't let me roll backwards. Like, if I'm on a hill, it does the handbrake thing for me. It's like it, it has the handbrake pulled up so that I can just go. And hey, I might stall out, but I'm not going to roll all the way down the hill and hit people and cars and gates and walls and those things. So the next time I did it, and, and that changed everything for me. It changed my mentality. It changed. It changed everything, like how I did it and the, the approach to it. And I was still nervous I might stall out, but I knew that if I did, I had confidence that I'd be able to get up the hill. Like it wasn't going to be a big deal. And it was. We went through. Everything was fine from, from there on. <laughs> everything was good. The smell finally went away after like an hour driving on the highway. Everything, everything was good. That's the resurrection for our faith. Our lives are trying to get up a hill, and we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. And what the resurrection does for us is it gives us hill assist. 
It gives us confidence to go up the hill because Jesus has already gone up the hill. He's already ascended it. Hill says to make sure we're, we're not going to roll backwards. Jesus and the resurrection does that in our faith. It's the crux of our faith. And like Hillis changed everything in my mentality and my confidence and, and driving the, the manual and, and being able to go up steep inclines, that's what the resurrection does for us. But the problem is, most of us don't live in the reality and the power of the resurrection. Most of us live like we don't have Hillisist. Most of us live like Jesus is still in the grave. For most of us, people still cover their faces and their noses when we walk by. When in actuality, we're supposed to be an aroma pleasing to other people. We're the aroma of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We're supposed to be that for other people, but people are still covering their faces when we walk by. We're supposed to be a, a people who, is, who has joy and peace and, and faith and trust, and, and we're supposed to draw other people to Jesus just by the way we live, but we still actually act like Jesus is in the grave. And we sing all of these beautiful songs this morning that, that Christ is risen from the dead, that he's out of the grave, that he's alive. None of, do you guys understand, like, the death of Jesus makes no sense if he is not raised from the dead. It doesn't matter that Jesus died for us if he's not alive today. And if he is alive today, that should change something about the way we live. But for most of us, we just live like Jesus is in the grave. That there's no power, there's no new life, there's no joy, there's no peace. And I was, as I was sitting there today singing, God just said, said to us as a church, we need to stop living like we're in the grave. Because Jesus isn't there anymore. If we go there to find Jesus, like, like when the, the disciples ran over there to find Jesus, and they're looking in the tomb, the angel comes, and he's like, who are you looking for? And I'm like, well, we're looking for Jesus. And they're like, well, you're looking in the wrong place. He's not here. He's not ever going to be here. He conquered this. He's, this is, he's out of that place, and he's never going to return to that place again. And, and so for us, as we walk through this passage, I want us to, to remember this one truth. We're going to take this throughout the entire passage. That living in the reality of the resurrection is vastly different from living in the restrictions of the regular. Living in the reality of the resurrection or the power of the resurrection is vastly different from living in the restrictions or the poverty of the regular. Okay, so when Paul starts talking about the resurrection here, remember Daniel uh, preached First uh, Corinthians, the first few verses in, in chapter 15 last week and talked about the gospel, and Paul lays out the gospel there. And then he goes in straight into the resurrection. And he says, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed, because he just did that, he just proclaimed that Jesus died for us, for our sins, for the sake of the world, in order that we might have life, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So he's dealing with people here in the church at Corinth who, believers or not believers, they don't quite believe that people are raised from the dead. And he says, 
there's nine implications, there's nine consequences, if that's the case. So going into verse 13, he says, so if that's the case, there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So the first implication is, the first consequence is that Jesus is dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus is dead. He's not alive. And now Paul is going to take that one premise and he's going to, all the rest of the consequences are kind of tied back to this. But he says, Jesus is dead if that is the case. And we might as well, we might as well just call it quits. It might as well be over. Because these are the next consequences. In verse 14, uh, oh, go back to, go to number two, sorry. Verse, uh, yeah, number two is what we believe is worthless. And as verse 14, he says this, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if Jesus is dead, then everything that we talk about, everything that we preach, that we teach, that we read here, that we have faith and trust in, is worthless. It's in vain. It's empty is what that word means. It's, it's hollow. There's no meaning there. There's no point in it. it. It's done. It's worthless if Jesus is dead. The third implication is coming out of the next verse. It's, we're liars. He says, we're even found to be, to be misrepresenting God. He said, if that's, if that's the case, if Jesus is dead, everything that we live for, everything that we say, is a lie. And we're just, we're not, we're not uh, bearers of truth. We're just liars. Next one. This isn't looking good, right? <laughs> he says, next one, if Jesus is dead, if there's no resurrection of the dead, we're powerless in overcoming sin. All those things that we talk about with, with sin and, and we can, uh, we, the, the bondage of sin and we've overcome that and we no longer have to live in the shackles of sin and we no longer have to let sin control us. We no longer have to be people who are, who are just chasing our passions and desires. All that is a lie. He says, he says we're basically powerless in overcoming any sin in our lives if Jesus is still in the grave. This is how significant the resurrection is. And so if you're, if, you're outside, if you're outside the Christian faith or if you've been in, in the Christian faith for a while, what you should start to see right now is that the resurrection is the hinge. It's the crux. It's the, the turning point of our faith. Because without, without uh, that, the cross is, is nothing for us. They have to go together the cross, and the resurrection. He says, if not, Jesus could have died for our sins, but if he didn't raise from the grave, then we have no power over that. We have nothing. Uh, number five. He says, the dead have been destroyed. In verse 18, he says, those who have fallen asleep, which is, gives you this picture of someone sleeping soundly, right? It's, it's a euphemism for death, but it's someone who's just sleeping soundly. That person has perished. They've been destroyed is what, is what that word means. They've been destroyed. So he's kind of pitting like, a, like something that's very serene against destruction, something that's very violent. And he says, basically, the dead have been destroyed if Jesus is dead if there is no resurrection of the dead. And then number six is that we have no real hope. This is coming out of verse 19. It says, if in Christ we have hope 
in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. He says, if Jesus is dead, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then we have no hope. I'll hit the next three later um, after we go in the next passage. But hope in the New Testament is, it's not a doubtful uncertainty. It's not, oh, I hope that it doesn't rain today. Oh, I hope we have a mild winter. It's, it's a, when, when you see hope in the New Testament in the Bible, it's a hope that's founded on something that is sure. So when we hope in something, when the Bible says to hope in this, it's because we know that God's going to do it and that it's done and that we can actually stand firm on that hope and say yes. And so our hope isn't like, ah, oh, I don't know. It's actually something that, is fir- that we're firmly rooted in, that our hearts fully grasp, and we can say with certainty, yes, but God is going to do this. And he says, if Jesus is dead, we don't have that. All we have is hope in this life. And then we're going to talk about that later in the last three. But he's like, that's, that's all you have. And if you look at your life, please don't raise your hands, but how many of you guys are living in the grave? How many of you guys are living like Jesus is dead? And if you're, if, you're fol- and if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, the reality is you are dead. The Bible says that you're dead in your sins. There's no way out of it apart from Jesus. There's no way. Now, for those of you who say you're followers of Jesus, who say that Jesus is your Lord, your Savior, your everything, your life, you shouldn't be living like that anymore. Paul says in Ephesians that he's brought us from death to life. He's brought us from darkness to light. Yet, but, but some of us who say we follow Jesus, we're still living like we're dead. We're still living like we're in darkness. And Paul says in the next few verses here, in, in verse 20, the tone shifts, the tone changes, and he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, he's not just making an assertion. He's not just making a blanket statement. Um, he's, he showed in the, verse few, in the first 11 verses of chapter 15 that over 500 people saw Jesus alive when he raised from the dead. Uh, the disciples did. He did. He lists a couple disciples, Peter, James. Uh, so he's corroborating it with eyewitness testimony. Y- you know, he points us to, the, uh, to, to all those, and then we see that later developed in the Gospels. So he says here, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he goes, uh, the, the key, one of the key verses in here is verse 22. He says, for as in Adam, the, the first person, as in Adam, all die. And that, when he says all die, it's, it, it has this connotation of we're continuing to die. When he says, as in Adam, all die, it can basically say, if it's literally translated, as in Adam, all continue to die. So if we are in Adam, just human, just regular, just in our sinful flesh, then we're just continuing to die. We've been dying since we've been born. We were born, and now we're on our way towards death. But in Christ, he says, shall all be made alive. 
And when he says that there, it's something that's done to us. It's passive. It's not in Christ we make ourselves alive. It's in Christ we shall be made alive. Do you see the difference there? It's nothing that we do. There's nothing that you can do or that I can do to be made alive. So if you're not a follower of Jesus in here this morning, hear that from, from, the, from the outside, that there's nothing you can do. It's, it's not up to you. That's the beauty of the gospel, that it's all been done by Jesus. All you have to do is, is believe and, and accept him. And then Jesus, it says, makes us alive. And then he gives some things. He talks about the kingdom here. He talks about kingdom enemies. He talks about death as an enemy. He talks about authority, rule, uh, every rule, um, and power as, as these enemies of the kingdom. And Jesus is, is the king who, is, who, is con- who has conquered the, these things in his death. So the song we sang, Oh hell, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? Like this is, these are enemies of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, is, and Jesus has conquered these things, and he's establishing a new rule. He's establishing a new reign. He's ushering in a new kingdom. And he does that through his life, his death, and his, his new life, his resurrection. And then Paul comes back in, in verses 29 through 34, and he gives the last three consequences if there is no resurrection of the dead. And so number seven is is uh, on baptism. It's our baptism is, is meaningless. And so he says here, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? This is actually one of the most controver- I don't know, controversial, misunderstood, difficult verses in the scriptures. Because when, you, when we read it, it seems like because of the translation, it seems like Paul is saying there's almost a proxy baptism. Like, I can be baptized for my great-grandmother who died, and I can be baptized on her behalf so that it has some salvific, some effect towards salvation for her after death. That isn't what's going on here. Um, But when we read it on the surface, it seems like that. We know that's not the case because the scriptures are very clear. Look at Acts 10, look at uh, the book of Hebrews, the, the scriptures are very clear that that, that cannot happen. That once you're, once you're dead, that's um, like nothing can be done after that. So scriptures are clear on that. So people aren't getting baptized for other people. What Paul is talking about here is he's talking about baptism in reference to the dead. So early on he mentioned that people have fallen asleep in Christ already. And he's saying there's no point in getting baptized, and baptism represents this. This is straight from Romans chapter 6, that we've been buried with Christ in his death. You put someone under the water, they've been buried with Christ in his death, and they've been raised to walk in new life, right? So this is the picture of Jesus dying and Jesus rising, and us dying with Jesus and us rising with Jesus in new life. That's why baptism is so, is so spiritual, is so significant, is so... Um, it's just a special part of a believer's life because it represents what Jesus did for us and we publicly get to share that and display that. And he says, our baptism, though, is meaningless 
if we remain under the water, if we just die, because those people who have fallen asleep already, we're not going to see them again. They're dead, and you're going to be dead, and we're both going to be destroyed. So what we do sometimes, so, some of you guys, you were baptized, but you're still living under the water. You haven't actually realized that you've been raised to new life in Christ, and that, and that your life is totally different, that you don't have the restrictions of the regular anymore, that you can actually live in the reality of the resurrection. So Paul is pointing that out here. Um, the number eight is, is the next verse, and he says the next consequence is that we suffer for nothing. He says, why, why are we in danger every hour? Why do I put myself through this, basically? And he says, I die every day in verse 31. But what do I gain, humanly speaking? He says, if I fought with beasts in Ephesus, just an example of, of some persecution that, that Paul went through. He says, if the dead aren't raised, what's, what's the point of that? What is the point of our suffering, he says? Is there a point? And then, and then nine, our lives are meaningless. That's kind of like the, the clincher. He's like, if you didn't get it at, at this point, <laughs> but basically your life is meaningless if Jesus is, is not alive. He says this, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He says, you might as well just do whatever you want. Eat whatever you want, drink whatever you want, party all day, party all night, because you're gonna die tomorrow anyways, and it's not gonna matter. There's no significance to it. You might as well just do what you want. If Jesus is dead, if there is no resurrection, you might as well just do that. But remember, he's said that Jesus is alive. And what I want us to see this morning is that living in the reality of that, living in the reality of the resurrection, is different from living in the restrictions of the regular. Do you guys know what resurrection means? What that word, uh, the, the actual Greek word is very beautiful. It's very, it has a, an it creates this amazing imagery. It means to stand again. It means we get to stand again in Jesus. It means that he has stood again. And it means that in him, we stand again. Paul here in verse 33 says this interesting statement. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Do you know why you're not standing again? Do you know why you're not experiencing the power of the resurrection? It's because you may believe it here, and maybe something here cognitively in your mind that you believe, but it hasn't transformed your heart. You have a belief, but you don't have the power. You have, you have, these, you, you have this thought where you're like, yeah, I, okay, I think I believe Jesus, Jesus is alive, um, but it hasn't actually penetrated your heart. It hasn't actually done anything in your life. It hasn't actually transformed you. And Paul says here, it's because bad company ruins good morals or good character. He's quoting a poet from, from that day. It's because you're consumed 
You love consuming things that aren't life-giving. And Paul says, it's going to ruin you. Christ has given us a certain character, and you're good with bad company, so it's going to ruin you. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying don't hang out with, with people who don't look like Christ or anything like that. Like we, we're an evangelistic church. We, we can't expect the world to come in here. We have to be in the world. We have to show people. We have to bring light to darkness, okay? Otherwise, otherwise it's just going to remain darkness, and we are the light. The, the church is the light of the world, Jesus says. So we have to do that. So I'm not talking about that. What I am talking more about is we're just okay with consuming the same things the darkness consumes. We're okay with consuming sex and sexuality and violence. And uh, I mean, I can go on and on. We're, we're just okay with consuming the same culture our world consumes. And Paul's saying, that's going to ruin you. That is ruining you. That's stripping the power of the resurrection away from you because your life is supposed to look different. We're so concerned about us looking different that we try to look like the rest of the world, and that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look different. We were meant to look different from the rest of the world. Now, let's flip all those consequences. If those are the consequences for uh, the resurrection of the dead not being true, now that we know and we can say with confidence that it is true, those of us who are in Jesus have experienced it. We've experienced the power of the resurrection. Now let's flip those consequences and let me show you guys what we have. Let me show you guys the power that you guys do have in Christ Jesus in the resurrection. Oh, they're all up here. No wonder you guys are reading them. Um, <laughs> okay, can we do those one by one or is it too late? Okay, um, try to look at the one I'm talking about. So one, yeah, I, I was talking and I saw all the eyes go that way. Um, one, Jesus is alive. Okay? Jesus is alive. Like, that's a simple statement, but it's the opposite of Jesus is dead, right? Jesus is alive. That means he's not in that grave anymore. That means that he has conquered sin, he's conquered death, all these things, and here's all the implications for that. Two, what we believe is not meaningless, it's not worth nothing, it's actually worth everything. Do you actually live your life like your beliefs are worth everything? Like this faith is worth everything? When you go to work, does anyone even know that you're a Christian? Does anyone even know that you're a follower of Jesus? If they don't, it's because your beliefs aren't actually worth everything to you. Jesus isn't worth everything to you. Because if he was, Paul says that your life is Christ. It's hidden in Christ. It is Christ. And you would just live that out where you are. The light would emanate out of you. The presence of Christ would be with you. Joy, peace, the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, love. All those things would just flow out of you. But we're so busy trying to step back into the darkness. And essentially, we're telling our world that Jesus is still in the grave. And we're not showing a changed life. Number three, you can speak truth. We went from being liars to now being able to speak truth. We have truth. People are seeking truth all around our city, guys. People want the truth. 
Now, we just don't know how to make it palatable. We don't know how to package it. Now, the gospel the, is offensive, the cross is offensive, but we don't have to be. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul says, but we don't have to be foolish when we share it. Okay, we, need to, we need to learn how to speak the truth. Uh, number, number four, we've got to roll through these. Uh, you can have power over sin. You see here, I've said you can have because the reality is you do have, but I said you can have because most of us don't understand that we have that. We don't understand how to grasp it and appropriate it and, and live out in it. So I want you to know this morning that that sin that plagues you, you actually have power over it. Do you know how I overcame lust and pornography in my life? I said no. I just said, there's two choices. There's death and there's life. And I choose life. It's not that hard, guys. It's not that hard to overcome your idols of success. It's not that hard to overcome lust. It's not that hard to overcome whatever plagues your life, your anger, what, whatever it is. All you have to do is choose life. Those are the choices that are presented to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that life is in you. It's close to you. And it's you just saying, no, that, that has no power over me. I, am, I have already conquered it because Jesus has conquered it. And I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Number five, you can have power over death. Death does not have to control us. I'm going to roll. Let's go number six. I don't remember what it, what it is. Who remembers it out there? N number six. Uh, what was it in the, in the first? No real, no real hope. So maybe it's you can have hope. <laughs> can you read it off of there? That's, there it is. Huh, I was right. Yeah, boom. You can have hope, okay? And, and this is the hope that I talked about earlier. Guys, you don't have to live in despair. Do you know that? You don't have to live in despair. You can actually live in hope. And I know, like, I don't know where you are right now. I woke up this morning not in, not in hope. I woke up this morning in despair. I woke up this, this morning not in a good spot. But I said, God, the church is going to be together. And if just for just right now, we can have hope together. We're going to do it. If we cannot live in that despair anymore, we're going to do that together. Because this is the body of Christ. Because this is the family of God. This is the household of God. And where you are, God, despair has no place. And it was just a choice. And God just transformed me from like, from six-something to nine-something, complete transformation to say, yes, these things are true. Number seven, your baptism displays entrance into new life. You're no longer under the water. You have entered into something else, into a new life, a different life. And your suffering can be meaningful, and your life can have meaning and purpose. Now, as a church, when I was thinking about what this means for us as a church, uh, because it's one thing for us individually, right? Individually, we want to live out on that, but how do we do that corporately? How do we do that as a church there's two opportunities for us as a church coming up. Uh, one, right now, 
we're looking at, we're looking at a space in St. Jamestown for local engagement. And this would be purely a, a space that we use to, to do domain engagement. If you don't know what that, what that means, I'll explain it some other time. But to just use our gifts, use our passions, use our vocations to engage in St. Jamestown. We've been working in St. Jamestown for two years. And it's where we focus as a church. It's where we, we pour into. And there's been so much happening underneath the surface. There's been so much happening that um, you guys probably haven't seen, but relationships have, have been built. We've been working with organizations. We've made really good connections in St. Jamestown. We've been building credibility. You know, when we went into St. Jamestown, when we, go to, when, we went into, when we go to anywhere in the city, really, do you know what the perception of the church is in general? It's not good. It's, it's, it's people who come into somewhere, try to do stuff to make themselves feel good, and then they leave. We looked at, and that's the good, that's the best we get. The worst we get is we're just sucking our city dry. We're parasites. So going into St. Jamestown, we had to start, to start to turn that perception. We had to build trust. We had to build credibility. We had to work, work to start to shift that perception to say, actually, actually, the church has something to offer. And that's all been happening the past two years, and we had this opportunity to look towards a space there in St. Jamestown. And um, all I know is God wants us to pursue it. All I know is that we should be heading in that direction. And some of the questions that, that we get uh, about the space, all the questions are, are good questions, all the questions we should be considering. But some of the questions I'm getting are, is it wise? Should we as a young church enter into something like this where we, we're going to be stretched for money, we're going to be stretched for this? How are we going to put volunteers in there? What, all these questions are good, but, but like the is it wise question, and I'm like, all I know is God wants us there. Sure, we have a plan, we've thought about this, we have this in order, but we live in the power of the resurrection, not in the poverty of, of uh, just the regular. We live in this power, and we need to do more. We've been gifted with something. We've been stewarded people and resources to do something more and greater in our city because we're bringing light into a community, because we're bringing life into a community, because we're going to the darkness and we're saying, Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. In a couple weeks, this is another opportunity. As a church, one of our main things has been looking towards, DN uh, looking towards as part of our DNA, global engagement, multi-faith stuff, working with, with um, people of other religions. And that's why we partner with Muslim organizations and, and other, other religious organizations because we say we can actually work with other people in a multi-faith way, which is different from interfaith, but in a multi-faith way we can say this is who we are, now let's work together in light of that. And, and so that's, that's something that's developing. Public square is huge for us. We want to get the Christian voice back on the public square. So in a couple weeks, the reason I'm going this ugly beard, which is really ugly, because <laughs> I'm going to be in uh, the UAE, Jordan, the West Bank, and Israel in the next couple of weeks because this stuff is starting to come together with public square and multi-faith and, and working around the world with, with Muslims. And, and like, there's these, like, 
I can't wait to tell you guys about what's going to happen and when I get back. But God is moving. And people are asking me, is it, is it wise for you to do this? Like, aren't, is it safe? Like, aren't, aren't you nervous? Uh, and I'm like, no, no. I live in the power of the resurrection, not in the poverty of the regular. And yeah, I'm going to some really dangerous places, actually, um, with some really dangerous people. But I don't live in, in the regular. We're called to live in the power of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. He's not in his grave. And we need to stop living like that. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Stop thinking and stop living like you can't think clearly. Stop living like you have no direction. Stop living like you have a headache all the time. Stop living like you're constantly going to throw up. You're the church. You're the hope of the world. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. He says the time has come for you to wake up. Salvation is nearer to us today than when we first believed. He says the night is far gone. The day, the light is at hand. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't live in the darkness. We live in the light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and cast off the works of the flesh. Put on the armor of light, he says. And wake up. That's the church. You were meant for something greater than what you currently are. You were meant to live in a better way. You weren't meant to live in the grave. You weren't meant to live under the water. You're meant to live life knowing that Jesus has already climbed that hill and that because of that, we can ascend that hill. You weren't meant to live in poverty. You're meant to live in power. You weren't meant to live in, in scarcity, but you're meant to live in abundance. That's what the resurrection gives us. It changes everything for us. And it's only through the power of the resurrection that we can change the world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you're alive. Thank you that we don't have to worry about death. We don't have to worry about sin. We don't have to worry about anything. We don't have to live a life in despair and anxiety. We don't have to live a joyless existence. We can live in peace and hope and goodness and joy and strength and power and you. Thank you that you give us all those things. And I pray that as we celebrate you this morning through response, through communion, through celebrate your, your, your blood that was shed for us and your body that was broken for us, that we wouldn't just celebrate your death this morning that we'd celebrate your life and your life that is lived in us and through us. So we give this time over to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.